At Alina Health, we care about your health and wellness. Learn how Alina Health provides care that can benefit you in this edition of The Wellcast. Now here's your host, Melanie Cole. You've sometimes heard people joke that drinking kills brain cells, but is that really true? What kind of effect does heavy drinking have on the brain? Here to give us the facts is my guest today, Dr. Jesse Corey. He's a neurologist at Alina Health's United Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Corey. So what is generally considered an acceptable level of alcohol consumption? How much does it really take to start affecting a person's functionality, safety, well-being, all of those kinds of thought processes? Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it, it's actually kind of interesting. When we look at, you know, what's considered a quote-unquote standard drink, it actually tends to vary a bit country to country and how they measure as far as the number of beverages a week or a day, what have you. But in the United States, we typically consider a standard drink to be you know, 12 ounces of a regular beer. It's about 5% alcohol or about 5 ounces of wine, which is, you know, wine typically runs about 12% alcohol or um, an ounce and a half of 80-proof distilled spirits. So in the U.S., we typically say for men, uh, two, uh, two beverages a day, uh, for women, one beverage a day. Each, you know, beverage typically having about 14 grams of alcohol. Um, and where that number kind of came up with is that it takes about an hour to metabolize that much alcohol. And again, that will differ depending upon person's body size, metabolism, that sort of thing. When we look at as far as then, well, at what point do people become, you know, disinhibited? At what point uh, does a person, you know, tend to have it affect their functionality? It varies individual to individual. People who drank more will typically have more of a tolerance. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily have a lower blood alcohol content. They're just able to function uh, with a little bit higher blood alcohol content. But typically we start seeing, you know, people having impairment in their ability to operate motor vehicles uh, and to, you know, to do basic mechanical skills at a blood alcohol content of about 0.08, which is typically what we consider legally intoxicated in most states. So, I mean, is that one of the ways that it was figured out about intoxication and driving, Dr. Corey? Did they kind of take those numbers? And obviously, as you say, it, it, it depends on the person's size and weight and how much alcohol they can actually metabolize and tolerate. But is that sort of how you think they may have come up with those 0.08 blood levels? Um, you know, it's interesting when they've, they've done, a lot of this is probably developed on studies where they would measure a person's motor skills and reaction time based by different blood alcohol contents. And typically uh, at about 0.08 is about where a person's uh, reflux time starts to decrease. So I imagine that's where these numbers came from um, as far as how they would say for each state, you know, what's considered intoxicated or not intoxicated. So what actually does alcohol do? So based on your metabolism, what does it do to the blood-brain barrier and to your neurotransmitters? I mean, obviously, for some people, serotonin levels may rise because they feel better, but that's not true for everybody. Correct. You no. Know, so what I think is really fascinating about alcohol is that, you know, first, you know, alcohol is something we kind of evolved with. I mean, there's a big school of thought that agriculture may have come out of man's desire not for bread but for beer. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then we look at, you know, the brain, you know, alcohol crosses very easily into the brain. It, it has the ability to to, uh, to cross that blood-brain barrier very, you know, very easily. So it's able to get into the brain, but the brain itself does not have a dedicated alcohol receptor. Alcohol, rather, seems to affect how other uh, receptors in the brain work. So we look, think about alcohol and those feel-good aspects of alcohol. 
Well, alcohol tends to work on the dopamine receptors in that nucleus accumbens. That's the little nucleus in the brain that helps mediate reward and pleasure experiences. And alcohol also is very good at reducing pain and actually having the brain release some of its endogenous opiates, its own, the brain's own morphine, so to say. Um, and probably what's, you know, the most known is the alcohol's ability to stimulate what's called the GABA receptor, the GABA-A receptor. And this acts to kind of reduce anxiety, and this is kind of the, the social lubricant aspect, if you will, of, of alcohol. And then you, you bring up serotonin. There's, you know, lots of evidence that, you know, with alcohol, it will stimulate those serotonin receptors, making a person um, have a more pleasurable experience, but it also, uh, in, at certain levels, will stimulate the third serotonin receptor, which is actually what mediates nausea. So that's why when you've had, you've imbibed too much, oftentimes people get very nauseated after they drink. Wow, you know that that's an interesting that's an interesting point about nauseous and how some people, I mean, can even have seizures. So if you drink Correct. too much, you know, you get nauseous, you throw up, maybe you get dizzy, you get the spins, whatever mm-hmm. it is that you get. So is that our brain or is that like a poisoning? Is that a blood thing? Well, that's you know a great question. So when a person's you know had too much, let's say too much for themselves, where they do feel the the nausea and the spitting and whatnot. Um, that's, you know, a combination of a couple of things. That can be the direct stimulation from the alcohol itself, or when alcohol is metabolized, some of its byproducts may cause the effect at various receptors within the brain itself to cause these things. We do know that alcohol itself does seem to have a toxic effect to certain cells in the brain, particularly cells what's called the cerebellum. And this is the part of the brain that helps control uh, balance both, for, you know, for you know your hands, for cordage for hands, but for walking and eye movement. So, if this part of the brain is affected, if you've had those those set receptors for nausea affected, you very well may also have the receptors that help um, integrate what you're seeing with what your body's feeling. And if there's a little bit of a mishmash, let's say where what you're seeing and your balance isn't quite working, you feel a bit nauseated. You know, this can, as you can imagine, have a very deleterious effect to that to that individual. So now what about binge drinking? We've heard about the dangers. I certainly speak to my teenagers about this. What is considered binge drinking? Okay. So typically, you know, binge drinking is considered anytime a person drinks more than what's recommended in a day. So again, for a person who's who's a male who drinks more than two or three beverages at a time or a woman, you know, more than two beverages at a time. When we colloquially think about binge drinking, it's a person who's, you know, going to have many, many drinks at, at one sitting where they're going to become intoxicated and then some. Binging is probably among one of the worst things you can really do for your person because not only do you have the acute results or the acute complications of alcohol intoxication, which can be everything from, you know, just simple, you know, nausea to full-blown withdrawal, but you can also do things that may potentiate other than the long-term more chronic problems of drinking, and as well as it, you know, if a person again, you are stimulating that reward system, and if you're binge drinking on a regular level, you're kind of reinforcing what can be, you know, which is considered a quite bad behavior, and you may run the risk of becoming an alcoholic long term. What about food and coffee, Doctor Corey? Because mm-hmm. people hear, you know, well, if you eat, it'll absorb the alcohol, but yeah. if this is a brain response, how does that work? And then certain things like caffeine, can they really counteract the effects? Okay. Great question. You know, so when people drink, it's always recommended to consume food with your drink. Um, the food will actually help, you know, bind the alcohol, will help it release slower. Further, alcohol, it's, it's an emulsifying agent. So it's going to bind to those fats and either 
pass through your gut, uh, you know, unmetabolized, or will be released slower into your bloodstream. So a person, if they're, you know, enjoying a, a good meal with their glass of wine, their bottle of beer, that alcohol will be probably consumed at a slower pace and absorbed a little bit slower, so the person may not feel um, the adverse effects. Now, you asked then about uh, caffeine. You know, you know, the, typically the main, the main way, mon- mon- yeah. the main way many of us get our caffeine is through coffee. And there actually has been some evidence that shows that coffee itself may actually help um, preserve the liver and may actually help uh, reverse some of the effects of long-term, you know, alcohol use. And in fact, uh, for many, you know, guidelines looking at, you know, recommendations for people who have, you know, fatty liver disease, regular coffee consumption is actually recommended. But then they say also that if you drink coffee after you've somebody who's imbibed way too much, then you're just a wide awake drunk. You know, that, I, mean, it's, I think it's something that, that goes for, that's, that's very individual. You know, people who you know, tend to drink like those energy drinks with their alcohol, yeah, they tend to be um, maybe more alert. And so they're the alert, um, less inhibited individual. Um, so that's always a possibility, but it really depends upon, you know, each individual and what they can handle. So if somebody is consuming alcohol, and maybe they're not a binge drinker, or maybe they're not an excessive alcohol drinker, what's your best advice for them about moderating, kind of keeping track of some symptoms, red flags that you might want them to know about that lets them know, hey, you know what, maybe you're just crossing the line a little bit, and maybe you need to dial it back? Excellent, great question. So I think the first thing is, you know, try to make alcohol, when you're using it, part of something, you know, something else, such as the meal, something where you're going to be consuming and doing things other than drinking. You know, the focus shouldn't be just on the consumption of alcohol. That's first. The, the next thing is that, you know, when you're consuming alcohol, make sure you take some time off. If you're going to have, let's say, a celebration, you know, a wedding, what have you, make sure the next day or two, you know, you, you try to limit or abstain from alcohol. Give your body a chance to recover. Um, the symptoms that people can look for that say, you know, maybe need to start worrying about this, maybe start, you know, drawing back is, you know, if that person, you know, can't remember the last time they went without drinking, or that person who says, you know, well, it's 5 o'clock, I'm starting to get the shakes right now, or when you start to associate too many things with alcohol consumption, those are things where you may want to say, okay, um, do I have a problem here, and, you know, what should I do about that? Another big thing is, you know, looking for why you're drinking. Is it to to help alleviate problems with depression, anxiety. Oftentimes people use alcohol to medicate for other problems. And so the solution may be to identify those problems and then treat it with an agent better than alcohol. And it certainly is important to keep hydrated both during and the next day for sure. Now, Dr. Corey, if someone has been consuming too much alcohol, wrap it up for us. And and if they want to quit, what do you recommend as a way to sort of take charge of the situation and get started? Yeah, I think the first thing is, you know, um, find a support group. Be it, you know, talk to your physician, find a group like Alcoholics Anonymous, find some group who's going to help you keep on the straight and narrow, so to say. The next thing you need to do is you need to have an understanding of how much you're drinking and understand, you know, what your baseline consumption is. And if your goal is to kind of weed off that, if you're a person who drinks excessively, we're talking, you know, 15, 20 drinks more a day, probably 15 or 20 drinks a day more, then you very well may need professional help, such as a detoxification center. So it's, again, great, you know, advice to get to your psychiatrist, get to your primary care doctor, and help you either 
enroll in this or work with somebody in the medical field. Because oftentimes, if you're going through withdrawal, you may not know when you are withdrawing if, in fact, you are having problems with hallucinations or seizure, what have you. If you're not drinking to that extent, but you still want to cut back, knowing your baseline will help you then say, okay, I'm going to reduce by, you know, 25, 50%, you know, every so many days. And it's not as though you're drinking for fun. It's a matter that you're drinking for medication to help you kind of come down for a gentle landing. The goal then, bring your body down to where it's no longer alcohol dependent. And then hopefully with that support group, with that people around you care for you, be able to to maintain off of alcohol for the time being. Absolutely excellent advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Corey, for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on. You're listening to The Wellcast with Alina Health. And for more information, you can go to alinahealth.org. That's alinahealth.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.